Hi, I'm Dr. Mila Brujic, and today I'm joined with Dr. Paul Chaus, where we're going to be talking about why it's not the best thing to be too sweet today on the OI Show. Dr. Paul Chaus, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. Um, you are you are really an authority in diabetic eye care. I have a quick story to share with you. Uh, this was about a decade ago. We were actually both lecturing at the same conference. My mom had your biography um, in the kind of the conference packet that uh, that they used to hand out, much more so now than they do it electronically. My mom started crying, and I said, "What's, what's wrong, mom?" She goes, "This person's story is unbelievable." So, Paul, Paul, sh- sh- share with us some of your story and and why you're so passionate about diabetic eye care and, and diabetes as a whole. Mila, you've, you've told me that story a few times now, and I blush equally strongly each time you tell it. So, so I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at 5, uh, developed proliferative retinopathy my senior year in college. My big brother actually saw it first, told me I needed to see retina, and uh, I woke up the next morning with a vitreous hemorrhage, <laughs> went to retina, had you know PRP pretty extensively in the mid-1980s, and when I became an OD, my... Uh, the, the, the doc that hired me was sending patients in to see me just to talk about diabetes specifically. He saw that there was a, a big need from patients to be better educated on their disease. And finally, my endocrinologist said, you know, I have a big need to have, you know, somebody close by to my practice. Why don't you move 30 miles from your current practice? I'll send you patients. And he did for about 10 years, he would send me 10, 15 new patients a week. So I've primarily got patients with diabetes in my practice now. That's what I do all day long. Wow. Wow. So Paul, you you are um, truly one of those individuals that are on the cutting edge of this. And again, from a personal perspective, you're passionate about it, but also too, from how you can uh, make patients' lives better. Um, give us Give us something that we need to be aware of on the ground floor when it comes to diabetes and diabetic eye care. What's, what's, what's new and innovative out there that we need to be aware of? So, so just two things I'll mention briefly. The, the first one is that you're not going to go blind from diabetes if you don't develop the disease, disease in the first place. So anything we can do to get patients physically active, eating less refined carbohydrate, and we can talk more about nutrition in a bit if you like, but that, that's an important point. But the other thing is that we now have really good evidence that anti-VEGF therapy can take somebody with non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy that's getting worse, and it can actually turn back the clock. It's one of the few complications in diabetes. We can reverse the disease with anti-VEGF therapy. And so there was a recent estimate, came out of Arvo, a presentation there, that if everybody with severe non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy were to get a series of uh, anti-VEGF injections, it would cut the number of people blinded by diabetes by 50%. Wow. And that's a pretty, it's a pretty amazing statistic. Wow, wow, wow. Paul, I'll tell you, um, the more we as a profession understand about anti-vascular endothelial growth factor, the more powerful we are when we're talking about this to patients, because this is this remarkable molecule that just is showing massive amounts of utilization in diabetes in macular degeneration patients. So it's, it's unbelievable. And knowing that is important, Paul, because again, we want to make sure that we're referring these patients at the appropriate time as well, too, to retinology. Absolutely. So, Paul, um, you know, give us perspective on how important it is for our patients to have good HbA1c levels and what that actually means long term from a diabetic eye care perspective. I, I, people ask me 
all the time, like, what can I do? Or if they have minor, mild diabetic, mild non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, what can I do to make it better or to um, make it so that it doesn't progress? What, what's what's the what's the kind of the ideal spiel to patients that that you kind of share with them? So so what I tell my colleagues in optometry now, but also my patients, is that it doesn't really matter what your hemoglobin A1C is today. It matters what it's been since you were first diagnosed with diabetes. A lot of patients aren't diagnosed till they've had diabetes more than six years based on the number of beta cells in the pancreas that are still functioning. So the average is 6.2 years at diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. So, you know, this whole notion of what's called the metabolic memory or the legacy effect, which basically means if you have great uh, blood sugar control early on, even if it goes down the toilet as time goes by, your odds of getting severe damage to the eyes from diabetes are much lower than somebody who has lousy control the first five or 10 years and then suddenly gets fabulous control. So what I want to know for my patients is not just what your A1C is today, but what has it been historically? The other thing that's important to know is A1C has a lot of flaws with it. First of all, it's not really an average. It's related to somebody's average, but it's not truly the average. So it's been shown, and this has been published, that somebody with a hemoglobin A1C of 9% might actually have a better average blood glucose level than somebody whose A1C is 7%. So you can't hang your hat exclusively on A1C. There is a new uh, marker that has emerged as a uh, highly predictive for diabetic retinopathy, and that's called glucose time and range. So it's basically what percentage of any day, week, month, or year Your blood sugar ranges between 70 and 180. You want to stay in that tight range as much as possible because when you get outside of it, the risk for diabetic retinopathy, kidney disease, heart disease all goes up dramatically. The downside to time and range is you need a device that can measure your blood sugar all the time. And so it's typically patients on insulin therapy. And there's multiple devices out there now. Probably your audience has seen these on patients. Dexcom makes one. Medtronic makes one. There's one you wear on the upper arm. Uh, called the Freestyle Libra. But these devices are wonderful because they calculate automatically for you your glucose time in range and the number, because we all know 7% is good for A1C. Maybe it's good. Not if you were 10% for a decade before though. But the time in range, ideally, you want it to be 70% or higher. So the, the higher number on the time in range metric is beneficial to patients in terms of complications. So Paul, just to kind of summarize that, I guess what you're saying is if you have that HbA1c, and let's say, for example, I haven't gone to a physical for five years, my HbA1c may be high, and I'm actually, when at the time of diagnosis, I'm actually starting at a worse place than somebody who's being caught earlier and maybe has an HbA1c that's in a better range for a longer period of time. Is that is that an appropriate that, way to think about exactly it? exactly right. And what it speaks to is, you know, we're diagnosing patients quite late. That's why 20 to yeah. 40% of patients have some degree of prolifer- uh, sorry, of non-proliferative retinopathy at diagnosis because we're catching the disease late. That's right. I'll tell you, Paul, um, imaging technologies have just advanced so much. It's um, remarkable to me, even with the best behaved patient at the slit lamp and with our BIOs, some of the things that we look back at, we and, and I like to consider myself a relatively speaking aggressive examiner, but when I see some of the things that our advanced imaging can pick up, it's absolutely unbelievable. And it, and it changes the way that we communicate with patients, even too now with um, OCT and geography and seeing some of that early dropout 
Some of it even precedes what we'll traditionally see as diabetic retinopathy. So it's just changed everything in terms of how we manage and communicate with these patients now. For sure. Not a day goes by that I don't do something simple, like just look at a red free image of my patient and say, oh, there's a microaneurysm that I didn't see. Much less when you go to OCTA, you're seeing all kinds of things you wouldn't have picked up otherwise. And people ask me the question at at eye meetings, typically at anti-VEGF kind of symposia, well, what difference does it make if I catch this early? And we don't really have good evidence to show that if you catch it early, you can prevent problems. But Mm -hmm. if you just think about the biology of the disease, the earlier you detect the problem, the more you can do to intervene to to prevent it from getting worse. Yeah, I I agree wholeheartedly, Paul. And with with that said, I think... that nutrition and how it affects the diabetic patient and um, diabetic well-being. Paul, can you share with us really kind of the background, the impetus behind that study and and really um, what what you did and what you found there? So I did a study. It was published in 2015, I think now. It ate up a lot of my life, (laughs) a good five, six years. Uh, the Diabetes Visual Function Supplement Study. So what we kind of did is there was a, a, an article written by a very well-known retinal biologist at Wayne State. And she said, would an ARIDS-2 type formula work for diabetic retinopathy? And so I got together with the folks at, uh, I promise, Zia Vision, as they used to be known, and we concocted a multi-component nutritional supplement that contained, you know, carotenoids like zeaxanthin and lutein, but a whole bunch of other micronutrients that mostly in animal models have been shown to prevent diabetic retinopathy. So we threw them all together in a in a capsule. (laughs) And so our study looked at people with diabetes for a minimum of five years, both type one and type two. They had either no retinopathy or mild non-proliferative disease, nobody with more severe disease. And what we looked at was their baseline visual function. So contrast sensitivity, color vision, visual field sensitivity, Uh, And then we did OCT. We measured a bunch of inflammatory markers in their serum. We looked at diabetic peripheral neuropathy symptoms as well. So at the end of six months, when we looked at the the placebo versus the supplemented group, there were statistically significant differences in virtually every category. So patients had better contrast sensitivity, had better visual field, had uh, better LDL cholesterol, better triglycerides, lower neuropathy symptom scores. The only thing that didn't improve was the OCT thickness, and that might be predicted just because these folks have early early disease, so probably not going to detect any improvements in OCT parameters. But you know, it it in another model with the same formula in rat chow, we showed we could totally prevent diabetic retinopathy in rats that had an average blood sugar of about eleven hundred for twelve months. So they were able to look with an electron microscope at their retinas, no signs of retinopathy. And, and that's cool, but you know, most of my patients aren't rats is my, is my joke about that. But we, we, we could show that we could improve these visual function parameters that are known to precede clinically observable diabetic retinopathy. Uh, numerous reports show that. So the hypothesis is that by using a formula like this early, we can keep people with visual function abnormalities from progressing onto the structural deficits that we so commonly see in diabetes. That's great, Paul. I think it's it's so interesting talking to you because you really cover the full gamut of diabetic eye care. You know, we talked about anti-VEGF and really where that is right now and the role that it has in that more severe disease state. We talked about the potentiation for preventing disease by 
at least helping patients understand the importance of HbA1c. And it's not necessarily a point in time that's going to dictate what happens. And in addition to that, too, you're now talking about nutrition where you can hopefully at least change the trajectory for a patient. That's all we're talking about is we're talking about reducing risk through appropriate nutrition. And again, that's commercially available now. So it's easy for patients to get as well, too. Well, Paul, I will tell you, I could talk to you for hours. And um, if it's okay with you, we would love, love, love to have you back on this show. Anytime. It's an honor. I'm thrilled with what you're doing. I think this this podcast is phenomenally helpful to all optometrists, but especially those of us that have been in practice, maybe not 30 years like myself, (laughs) because, you know, really where you set the tone for how you're going to practice and move the ball forward in terms of optometric, you know, care of patients with all sorts of ocular conditions is with the folks that are more recently out of their training. So I, you know, my hat goes off to you and Dave Kading, what you guys are doing. Oh, great, Paul. Thank, thank you so much, Paul. And thank you all for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast. And otherwise, Paul, thank you again. And all thank you for tuning in. We'll make sure we bring um, Dr. Chelsea back on another podcast episode. Thank you. 